It's a blessed morning, and we've been given the privilege and a marvelous one at that to assemble and to gather in the way that we are, and how happy we are to be able to be called children of God. Today, as we'll reflect for a few moments on a lesson I've entitled Feelings and Instruction, it will have a strong bearing on the materials that our ladies' class is studying for this present month. This opening slide is one that I hope will basically give us an idea about what that lesson itself involves. You know, the book that our ladies have selected to study during the four-year course that they're currently considering has to do with authority. And every lesson, in one way or another, touches that particular subject. And already they have studied some powerful, powerful ideas. This month, what about all these feelings? And in fact, the lesson, as it's developed in that particular writing, will ask us to give thought to feelings on the one hand versus instruction on the other. You may notice about the middle of that slide, the issues that really surround this particular topic are critical. In fact, I chose the two parts of that title, feelings on the one hand and instruction on the other. And for the next few moments this morning... Let's give some reflective and very critical consideration to both of those things. And may I suggest, let's consider them in that order. First part of the lesson, to reflect on the perspective of feelings. And the second part, to allow the Word of God to tell us some rather amazing things. May I suggest that the matters before us impact each of us individually. It impacts society. It impacts the church. These are major ideas. Let's start like this. We each know it well that the particular culture in which we live, and I suppose it has ever been this way since the days of Adam and Eve onward, but it seems as if there's a critical consideration in which there's a strong tendency on the part of individuals to behave in the way according to their feelings. Let's look at a few examples. What about from a national standpoint? So easy, isn't it, for someone to say, Look, I particularly, as a man, do not want to marry a man, but if that's what they want to do, if they feel as if it's okay for them, well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong for two men or two women, if they want to be together, to do it that way? Or maybe someone else says, you know, I just think that it would be wonderful if the government would provide pure health care and I don't have to pay a penny. Well, you know, feelings can be awfully strong and sometimes platforms and candidacy more or less are prompted by aspects and feeling. But as far as other examples, what if we come to a consideration of on a personal basis? You know, I don't think there's a thing wrong if you want to have a beer or two. I don't believe there's anything wrong if you want to have a little champagne to celebrate some success or victory in your life or your family. And who are they to tell me anything different? You know, I don't think there's a thing in the world wrong. If I want to marry this person, surely God would want me to be happy, wouldn't He? He'd want me to be able to experience and to understand a degree of contentment. And if I want to marry him or her, what's wrong with it? feelings, you see, prompted by the things that I might want or the considerations that I might prefer. 
sometimes in convenience or otherwise. And may I say, these kind of matters, of course, touch issues in religion. How many times have you and I heard someone say, well, I don't think you have to be baptized. Now, if you want to be, it's fine. But God looks on your heart, doesn't He? Well, may I say again, feelings prompted by considerations, even in matters of the gospel plan of salvation. Maybe one final thing. How many times have you at least been in position to note individuals, sometimes very respectful individuals that say, it doesn't matter what church you're a part of. Find you one that is what you want it to be and, and join it. You know, it, I don't really think it matters. Well, in every one of those aspects and those sentences that I've mentioned, you'll notice there's been a key word. It's either been the word feel or the word think. It's what I feel, it's what I think, or it's what others feel or think. And isn't it true that that kind of thinking can become a part of you and me as Christians, where a Christian would say, I don't think it matters if you attend every service or not. If you can mark off Sunday morning's worship, surely the others don't matter. I'd hate to have to give an answer on the Day of Judgment for that, especially when God says it does matter. But as we develop all those thoughts more thoroughly this morning, why don't you and I develop it like this? Feelings. What I think. I would point out that there is a rather major movement underfoot these days. It's called the Emerging Church Movement. We may well have a lesson or two in the coming months, at least, that develop that thought a little more thoroughly. But that idea is founded critically on this idea. When it comes to church, you amplify, you do that which is in accordance to your perception and your feeling. And you have the fullest trust that God's happy with that. Two more things before we look at the bottom of that slide, one of which is this one. The matter before us these days is certainly a familiar one. How often have you and I been in position to note encouragement to follow your heart? Let your heart be your guide and let it lead you to where you will fulfill the potential and promise of your life. Songs tell us to do that. Movies tell us to do that. Just follow your heart. And may I say that even in those instances when, as the sign indicates, your head tells you one thing and your heart tells you something else, follow your heart every time. That's the advice we're given. That's the slogan that we're told. As I was writing on this lesson, it occurred to me to think perhaps about the most famous song Frank Sinatra ever sung. You've probably already thought of it too. I did it my way. As I faced the challenges and difficulties in life, whatever they were and in every circumstance, I did it my way. Now at the bottom of that previous slide, We've got to get this right. The advice that I've just listed for you, and it wasn't any surprise, it's all wrong. Every bit of it has been wrong to this point. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The Bible and the book of Proverbs twice, in fact, practically verbatim, 
chapter 14, verse 12, chapter 16, verse 25, there's a way that seems right. It looks to be the thing and my feelings would tell me to go that way. And the inspired writer says, it leads you to death. It leads you nowhere good. It leads you to doom and destruction. It is not the feelings that your guide that you can trust. There's a way that seems right, but its end is death. Those aren't the only verses in the Word of God that bring us to that observation. Let me quickly mention a couple more before we move to the next part of our lesson. In Jeremiah 17, it is the ninth verse of that chapter where the great prophet, God in fact speaking through him, had a message for the children of Israel. Now by that time, of course, Babylonian captivity was on the horizon. They had, be- they had behaved badly. They had rejected God. They were following their heart. Listen to me now. The children of Israel had begun to follow their heart, and here's what God said. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God told through the prophet to the people of Israel, your heart can be easily swayed. It can be easily deceived. Circumstances, fads and fancies, and those who are eloquent speakers, they can persuade you into ways that are not safe and they are not good. If only our world could appreciate that truth today. As we come to the New Testament, Romans 1.21, on that occasion, Paul, as he kicks off the Roman letter, it was to them, he said, your foolish heart is darkened. Notice, the darkness had come over them. They had followed their heart, but it had led them to places of darkness. It had led them to aspects and avenues that were not holy and good. It had led them to destruction. I hope that this opening slide has at least reminded you and me of the great danger attached to feelings. Feelings are not by themselves a safe and comfortable guide. As you and I have already learned, the heart can be deceived. The heart can, in fact, make decisions that are not in accordance to truth. No wonder we need the second part of the lesson. Ye shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth shall make you free. Why don't we devote the remainder then of our lesson to using the Word of God, reminding us that it is not merely feelings, but rather it must be the presentation of the truth of God, instruction in other words, to do that. Let me encourage you to come to the book of Titus. In fact, much of the rest of the lesson will be devoted to a consideration of that little three-chapter book, the New Testament book of Titus. While you're finding that, let me make a few introductory remarks. And then we'll begin in chapter 1 in a moment and highlight a few of the issues that God reminds us about the placement of instruction and the consideration that it brings before us. Christianity is not a religion predicated on feelings. Let me say that again. Christianity, the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ, is not a religion predicated on feelings. Wasn't it true that Jesus, as He gave the marching order for one and all, for all time, He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus said, you go, apostles, and teach. It's only after that that you baptize them. They've got to learn something first. There's a body of knowledge they must agree to and they must understand. You've got to teach them. Notice they didn't own their feelings. And not only that, once you baptize them, you've still got to continue to teach them. The word teach occurs twice in that passage. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So even once we're Christians, even then, we still need to be taught. Instructed, and aren't we thankful for the Word of God? Christianity, may I again say, is not predicated on our feelings. Paul's about to highlight that very powerfully to Titus to the church in Crete. As we begin that consideration, notice the opening verse of the book, Titus chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, now notice it with me, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. As we're going to learn in a moment, the individuals living on the island of Crete, their culture was rather bad, and their behavior was very, very less than ideal. At this point, notice verse 12 to at least draw that point to consideration. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own. So a very prophet, a person who would speak on behalf of the people living on the island of Crete would say, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. May I say the culture on Crete was questionable. Notice they were known for lying. They would just as soon tell you lies to give you any indication of the truth. They majored in sharing falsehood. That's what they liked to do on the island of Crete. Not only that, it says they were slow bellies. They were lazy people. They didn't like working much. So they liked to lie and they liked to be lazy. It also says they were evil beasts. That's Paul's inspired description of a society that liked to do things that were ungodly. No restraints physically, whether it be sexual or otherwise. Do whatever you feel like doing. Now notice, one of, the own, one of the people on Crete would in fact describe the people that way. And in the midst of that kind of situation, there was a congregation of God's people on the island of Crete. And Paul through Titus urged them, you cannot be governed by your feelings like this. There is an acknowledging of the truth, Titus 1 verse 1. No wonder in that light. Go ahead and turn to chapter 2 with me. And let's notice verses 11 and 12. Again, notice the powerful description to those that would be Christians. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Watch it with me. Teaching us. Notice there's instruction involved. God's grace teaches us something. It is not something that merely I feel. There is an instruction involved in the grace of God, and it goes on to say, teaching us that denying ungodliness. You people on Crete, again, Paul through Titus would say, you've got to deny ungodliness, this laziness, this lying, this evil beast character. You've got to deny this. Or furthermore, worldly lusts. 
It's not just what you want to do, and it's not what you think. Closing part of the verse, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. God's grace teaches us, and you'll note with me, the people on the island, the people, of course, related to the church, it wasn't merely what you think. It was a response to instruction. With that as a background, look at a few of the specific ways that the book develops that thought. I would mention this one. Correction isn't always enjoyable. Maybe we remember that from dad and mom, don't, don't we? There were times that rebuke and correction was not a pleasant experience. Look at verses 12 and 13, chapter 1. This witness is true. I'm reading verse number 13. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Paul admonished Titus, you got to rebuke them. And he said, sharply. It's going to take strong language. They can't behave this way, following their feelings and be pleasing to God. You've got to be strong. And as you preach that truth, it's always done in love, of course. But you can't compromise it. Chapter 1, what about elders? You can imagine the difficulty that these elders in the church at Crete would have had. In a society that enjoyed laziness, lying, ungodliness, evil beasts, that congregation no doubt had some strong opposition from the devil and his, and his forces. Look at verse 5, beginning in chapter 1. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, and temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Would you be impressed that Paul told Titus, I want you to set in order the things that are wanting. And that means ordain elders in every city. Every congregation needs to have these men that meet these qualifications we've just read. This particular passage lists 17 of them. 17 required characteristics that a man must have in order to be appointed as an elder. 1 Timothy 3 lists some additional ones, but at least here lists 17. May I say some of them touch the man's character. He needs to be a man recognized as a pious, godly man. But may I also say, it's not all just about him. Some of these involve his family. His family needs to be regarded as having met these characteristics, certain things as well. Notice he's got to be the husband of one wife, so he's got to be married. And 1 Timothy 3 says she's got qualifications to meet too. Certain things even a man's wife needs to have if he's to be considered as an elder. Not only that, his children. 
This verse says he's got to have faithful children. It needs to be an apparent thing that these children have been reared in such a way that they appreciate that it's not about feelings. It's about the truth of God. And that must stand supreme above everything else. You'll notice it says having faithful children, children that believe, children that are trustworthy in light of their response to God. Isn't it interesting that here you'll notice it's not a matter in feelings. Just because a man wants to be an elder or feels as if he's been called to such a thing, that's not enough to appoint him. There's instruction involved in things that must be met. Notice as he begins this letter that way, the element of instruction is powerful and clear. Why don't we turn to the next chapter and see how it continues. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Not only are elders those who again mustn't major in feelings. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Older men, all of us also are given particular and especial instructions. It's not about the way you feel. There are certain things that an older man, he needs to be like this if he's going to please God. So all of us who fall into that category, may I ask that we consider verse 2 carefully. Aged men be sober. The original word carries the thought of total abstinence from alcoholic beverage. Older men, there is no problem in life, no circumstance that will ever arise where liquor's the answer. It'll only make it worse. I promise you. It will never help solve anything. After all, while you're in this state of stupor, you're not able to think clearly. You make decisions that are not wise. You adversely affect those that love you the most because you're acting so foolishly. Paul didn't stop there. The next word the King James uses is grave. G-R-A-V-E. The word means to be of dignified character. The word carries the sense of respectfulness. May I say, older men, we need to behave in such a way that we do carry out the dignity characteristic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our family, our church family, our community, others that know us see in us a tested experiment of the truthfulness of the Word of God. By now, there ought to be years of consideration and directiveness toward that goal. But Paul doesn't stop. Temperate. The word literally means self-controlled. The time has long since passed that the passing fancies of life ought to engulf us and we follow these tangent paths that lead nowhere good. By now, we ought to think clearly, and our mind ought to have long ago been set that there is a way that's right and we're going to follow it. Older men, we got others watching us. Those that are younger are looking to us as examples. And our family are trusting that you and I are leading them in the way that leads to heaven. In addition to self-control, the next word, sound in faith. I really like that phraseology. Look at what it literally means. 
The word sound comes from a word that means to have good health. Every one of us rejoice when our physical health is good. But look at what this says. Sound in faith. That is to say, to be in good health relative to the faith. Older men, how's your health? In faith. Now you and I know what it means to have good health in this physical body. We feel good, we're strong, the organs are working as they ought to. Is that true of your spiritual well-being? If it isn't, then do something about it. The great physician is available, and he has the remedy that you, that any of us need to be sound in faith. Look at the next one, to be sound in charity. Same wording, to be in good health relative to love. Older men, are we always grumpy? Are we always irritable and can't get along? If we are, what does this verse seem to say about us? We again ought to be recognized as those who understand the attribute of agape love. We love our wife, we love our children, and we love the truth of God. We love our families. Are we known for this? One last thing in the verse. Sound and patience. Again, to be in good health relative to patience. Now, I realize in English, our word patience is a little bit different than the original word that appeared there. That word meant perseverant. You and I know what that means. Don't ever, ever give up. I don't care what you and I are called upon to face. And there could be some challenging matters. Things may develop in your health or mine. Circumstances may come our way with natural catastrophes or other crises in life. Never, ever relinquish your faith. Older men, there are people watching us. And among that group is the God of heaven. We want to please Him. You'll notice that that verse has talked to the older men and given them instruction. Those old men on the island of Crete were told, you behave like this. But look at the next verse. It isn't just the old men. It's not just the aged men. Let me, let me jump over a verse and come to verse number 6 while we're on the topic of the men. What about young men? They too were described, and here's what it says. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Now, it may seem as if that listing is awfully short for the young men. I'd like to suggest to you, though, that there's a great deal included in that wording, sober-minded. Let's develop it like this. It carries the sense of judgment. It carries the sense of making proper choices. Those young men on the island of Crete had a lot of negative influence around them. Lying, evil beasts, slow bellies, laziness. Titus was admonished by Paul, you urge strongly those young men to make wise choices, good decisions things they won't live to regret. That's one of the things that life so often brings us. As we make a poor choice, it may bring a lifetime of regret. You'll notice one last thing on that slide. As Paul would quickly mention in this letter, that which is that powerful guide for judgments, the Word of God. We'll develop that certainly in just a moment, but let's turn our attention to the women Notice in this ancient world that we may have thought was focused upon the men, Paul didn't leave out the women. 
What about the women in the church at Crete? Verse number 3. That the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers, at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God be not blasphemed. Having made some statements relative to the older men and also the younger men, why don't we now give thought to verse 3. Older women, those women who have some years of seasoned experience beneath them, notice what is said to them in verse 3. The word likewise is included, and so that means Titus, Paul says to him, there are instructions that the older women need to know as well. It's not just about their feelings. It's not just about what they may feel convenient or as preference. Here are some clear-cut elements in instruction. First of all, they be in behavior as becometh holiness. I've asked you to notice the definition of that. The wording in Greek is really pretty strong. That is to say, their demeanor, their conduct, their behavior should have an element of reverence about it. Quite often, you and I think of the word reverent as it connects to certain individuals in various denominations who would preach, they're called reverend. May I say to you, that word carries a strong element of piousness and piety, correct behavior. Older women strive to act reverently. Your demeanor, your conduct, your example to all who are privileged to know you should be an example of reverence. Look at what's next. Not false accusers. As you'll notice on the slide, the word seems to carry the following idea. That word false accuser, that comes from the word that you and I today would recognize as the base word for slander. We know what it means to slander somebody. You besmirch their reputation. You speak in a very negative or derogatory way of them, not in their presence. The older women were told, don't you talk like this. May I say it would include gossip. But I find it interesting that the very word that appears there is the same word that's used as the name for the devil in Revelation 12. Notice there he's called the diabolical one known as Satan. That's the same root word as here. May I say, women, and men, it's true of us too in many ways, if we choose to talk and we speak in ways that are of the devil, we're not really following the instruction that God has given. Notice what else is said in verse 3. Not given to much wine. Now we understand this is not in any way an endorsement to moderate social drinking. I know much has been written through the ages about that word much. So some would say, well, look, I can drink a little. It just says not a lot. You can't interpret it that way, for it contradicts directly at least a half dozen other passages. Any Christian has got to be sober, and that means to abstain from wine. And so we know this does not mean in any way a license to moderate drinking. What it does insist is this. 
those women of that day and still to this day. You don't find the satisfaction of life in the carnal pleasures that would include drinking or anything like it. You find the true meaning in life and the significance of it in something far deeper and more profound than that. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 12 in which it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The next element in the list, teachers of good things. Older ladies, you are commanded to be a teacher. Now, we realize that's not a public mixed audience for, again, other passages tell us you're not permitted to teach men in that way, but you're to teach the younger women. You are to teach them good things, such as what verse 4 tells us. I would ask that you notice that word teach includes the idea of training. Your life needs to be an open example that others can look upon and see your dedication to reverence. May I again say, this is not about feelings. Someone might say, well, I don't think I need to do this. It doesn't matter what you think. If you're going to please God, just like the older men who might say, I don't think it matters if I do these things. It does matter. We're going to be judged one day. And we're going to have to give an answer for our disposition relative to these things. Perhaps in light of that, let's go ahead and finish this listing by noting the younger women, then we'll put some of those together. For after all, think about a younger person, a younger woman on the island of Crete. What things did she face? What challenges were hers? In the midst of all of that, look at what they were told. Verse 4 that they may teach the young women. So these older women were to train, to instruct, to teach the younger women things like this. To be sober. Same word that you and I have noted previously. I would ask that as you look at that listing, the first one I have asked for you to consider is to love their husbands. Maybe it seems awfully strange to us that a woman would need to be encouraged and instructed to love her husband or to love her children. Isn't that automatic? Isn't that something that should come naturally? And yet the inspired Paul told Titus, these younger women need instruction in this. Let's face it, younger women. Sometimes it isn't easy to live with a man. He can behave in ways you don't understand. He can make choices and decisions that seem perplexing to you. An older woman who has lived for a number of decades with a man in faithfulness in her marriage, she can instruct that younger woman, here's how you love your husband. And when it comes to loving your children, they're going to do things that drive you crazy sometimes. They're going to act in ways that are astounding and oftentimes very frustrating. For a woman who has already reared her children, that older woman, she can teach that younger woman, here's how you deal with those challenging toddler years. And here's how you deal when they get to be teenagers. Here's what you're going to face. Be ready for it. May I say that younger women appreciate the wisdom of the older women in this audience. Ask them questions. Tap into their reserve of wisdom and knowledge. 
It's amazing what a repository of truth they are. May I say, trust perhaps in others. As an older man, if you'd like to ask him, he was a boy once. And if you have a teenage son who's beginning to behave in ways that are very challenging and difficult, ask someone else who's been through this. They may have words of wisdom that'll mean a great deal to you. As I close that slide, let me say this. Those younger women were also told to be discreet. That word literally means to be sensible, to be self-controlled. You can't go by your feelings. I know there's a lot of peer pressure and they're doing a lot of things and they're going to encourage you to do it and the devil is too. But you can't be guided by that. Your feelings are not a safe guide in that regard. One last thing, chaste. Oh, how sweet that word is. A word that carries the essence of purity, the essence of innocence, the notion of holiness. You and I realize, of course, there are sexual implications in that. That white dress on a woman's wedding day needs to mean something to indicate that she has kept herself for her husband and that in faithfulness she and he will enter that holy bond of matrimony and intending therein to be faithfully encouraging and wed one to the other throughout life. No wonder those things bring us to the remaining elements of the list. He goes on to say in verse 5, Keepers. Now that's an interesting word. The word literally means workers. Even younger women, you see, they have work to do. They're not to be lazy even though that was the culture of the island of Crete. You'll notice, though, the next word seems to indicate the particular realm in which their work takes the highest consideration at home. Now, that verse doesn't teach that it's wrong for a woman to work outside the home. It doesn't teach that. But what it does say is God expects women because He has equipped them in ways He hasn't equipped most men to take care of the duties and the things to run the house in the way it ought to be done. She is equipped better to do that than a man. She thinks in ways that make that easier for her. And she can certainly accomplish it most of the time much more efficiently. She is supposed to keep that house running in the way that it should. Now, the man's still the husband. The husband, of course, is the head of the wife. But he has given to her these duties, these obligations, and she, according to these words here, are to fulfill them. Two last things. She is to be good. You may notice the elder was to be a man who loved that which was good. But here the younger women are to learn to appreciate and value that which is good. Finally, it is noted that she is to be obedient to her own husband. I realize since the 1960s that has been rather taboo for a woman to obey her husband. And in fact, many times that has been removed from the marriage vows. It was once rather naturally to be included that you promise to honor, obey, and cherish him. Well, that word obey for the most part has been eliminated. But it hadn't been eliminated from the Bible. It's there just like it always has been. It is the will of God, husband, that you lead that wife, but she's to obey. 
And so, men, we have an obligation here. We need to lead them in a way that they would be comfortable submitting to our leadership and to lead them in the pathway that leads to everlasting life. And in that way, of course, she is expected to obey such an husband as that. And certainly that would make it much easier for her. In other cases, she'd still have to obey, but it wouldn't be nearly as pleasant or comfortable for her to do it. Let's close that slide like this. I think we'd all agree that feelings have not been the matter for the book of Titus. It's been instruction. Whether it be elders, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, all have been given instruction to follow. May I say that you could even include servants in verses 9 and following. In other words, even those that were slaves, they had instruction. It was not on feelings. Perhaps a servant would say, but my master mistreats me. That didn't change what Paul wrote. Verse 9 says, exhort servants to be obedient unto their masters. He didn't say, if they treat you well, you will be obedient to them, regardless how they treat you. May I say that a lesson like this one is a reminder to all of us that there is a straight and narrow way that leads to everlasting life. And the instruction of God is the only way we can tread it safely. Let's close our lesson like this. To summarize what we've learned this morning, using the book of Titus as our primary guide, feelings on the one hand versus instruction on the other. On the one hand, we're so often admonished, follow your heart, your feelings. But we've learned that is not so. For there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Isn't it interesting then, in light of those ways of death, the sadness that goes along with it, it offers you and me an opportunity to respond to the gospel's call of invitation. I hope each of us today are admonished to be a better husband and father, to be a better wife and mother, to be a better and faithful Christian. And it's only by God's instruction that we can do that. It's not the way you and I feel about it, even though our world would have us to think otherwise. Today, if we could be of response and help in any of you, we'd be delighted to do that. If you'd like to become a Christian today, turning your life over to the one who will safely keep it until death, if you'll be faithful to Him. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if you have begun the walk with Christ and you've known the faithfulness of it, but you have walked astray, just like they on Crete, you need instruction, and hopefully the Word of God has provided that sufficiently. But may I say, if you need additional instruction, meet with one of our elders or myself. We'd be happy to open the Bible with you to help you come to appreciate what the teaching of God is. Today, if you'd like to respond publicly, we want you to know that we, just as God, loves you. And we want you to be right and to go to heaven because that's the most important thing. If you need to come back to your first love, you do that by repenting of your sin, following, of course, your belief and conviction that God's way is always right. And upon that repentance and confession, God will forgive you. Come before us today and make acknowledgement of that, and Jesus will love to welcome you home as, your, as His faithful child. Today, if we could help you in any of these ways, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?